don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. You're going to have to forgive me if I get a little bit overexcited today, but I am very much in dream guest territory on Second Captain Saturday. Oh, my David here with my dream presenting partner, Kieran Murphy. Hi, Murph. It's a dream to be here, Owen. How are you? <laughs> the dream guest, in, well, I'm great, as you can tell, because the dream guest in question is Malcolm Gladwell, one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people in the world. He's been a writer with The New Yorker for 25 years, author of six New York Times best-selling books. More recently, he's moved into the podcasting game with one of my all-time favourite shows, Revisionist History. I don't want to say I'm obsessed, Murph, but yes, I have gone back and listened to a number of episodes repeatedly. So, And his audiobooks are incredible as well. I'm not talking about an author reading their own words in a sometimes vaguely disinterested fashion. <laughs> Gladwell, we've all heard one of the... You forget about the vaguely there yeah, from yeah. The, some of the audiobooks. Gladwell has taken it yeah, to yeah. a new level by weaving in archive audio, voices of contributors, scene-setting music and all the rest of this really well-crafted audio. So whether you read him or listen to him, it's impossible not to be taken in by the way he thinks about the world. And more often than not, you're going to end up thinking a little differently about things yourself. Among the ideas he popularised, albeit one of the more controversial ones, Murph, was the 10,000-hour rule, which he wrote about in his book Outliers. This was a theory based on a study of violinists at Berlin's Academy of Music from the early 90s. It apparently showed that it took 10,000 hours of practice to attain a truly elite level. And this idea was then broadened out to include not just playing music, but any discipline, really. 10,000 hours became this sort of magic number. But I mean, it, it was, and in many ways it still is, it endures as an idea that stretches obviously far beyond violinists, uh, far beyond sport, and basically into all levels of kind of business life, uh, social life. This idea that to attain excellence in anything, you need to devote that level of time to perfecting it. Even within the book, there you know, he presented plenty of exceptions to the rule, and we'll chat to him about it, in, well, hopefully, in the next few minutes about it. But gross oversimplification is what happens when you produce ideas that become part of the part of the culture, part of the cultural discourse. Looking forward to talking to him about that one. He must have put a few hours into his own running career growing up in Canada, by the way, because this guy could move. We're talking about a national underage middle distance champion. Don't know if you knew this, Kieran, And he still churns out some fairly tasty 1500 metres times well into his 50s. So any time is a great time to talk to Malcolm Gladwell. But around the Olympics is better again. He's coming up shortly. And I sense a few previous guests shifting uncomfortably at what's about to unfold in the battle to become our greatest non-sports person, sports person. What's the latest at the top of the standings, Kieran? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So the situation as it stands right now is that Richard Ford is top of the tree with 85 points. Bonnie Greer is bringing up the rear on 71 points. But I have to say, I have to say, there is every reason to be optimistic about Malcolm Gladwell's chances. He talks a good game. He runs a good race. But will it be enough to charm me on? That is the question. (laughs) Much like that accursed modern pentathlon horse, I'm a temperamental old beast, so time will tell. Uh, he's going for gold in my book anyway text us 51551 tweet at second captains email editor at secondcaptains.com Malcolm Gladwell coming up after a bit of Irish music here's Keen Cavanagh I'm 
That tune is Emma by Keen Cavanaugh, an extremely talented young man from Leash who is not shy in wearing the county GA colours on stage, Murph, something I'm sure you'd endorse. Oh, well, I've seen that abomination of a early 2000s Leash jersey <laughs> on him a couple of times. But <laughs> even notwithstanding that, I think it's fair to say he's the coolest thing to come out of Leash since big Huey Emerson on. And that's pretty cool. <laughs> You'll know our guest today on Second Captain Saturday is the author of some of the most influential books of the last 20 years, the creator of the wonderful Revisionist History podcast and a man who has changed the way we think about the world around us. What you may not know is that Malcolm Gladwell was also an underage track and field champion who grew up idolising the great Irish athletes of the 1970s and 80s. Malcolm, it's an absolute pleasure having you on the show. It's my, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Is, is this true? We've heard maybe Eamon Coughlin and John Tracy and these kind of guys figured a little bit. Well, uh, that whole, the whole cohort, the Brits, the Irishmen, all everyone from that, from that era. Yeah, those are the people I you know, Steve Ovett and Seb Coe and Coughlin and uh, Tracy, the great mudder. Yeah, the, yeah, the mudlark. <laughs> yeah, that's the most Irish thing you can be is to, is to be a great mudder. In, um, <laughs> and um, oh, yeah, those are my heroes. I have a um, I was actually online yesterday looking at, you know, you can go on Getty Images and look at photographs. And there's a wonderful photograph of Brendan Foster uh, running in the early morning on an empty street in Gateshead you know, with a long row of terrace houses and, you know, wearing his Adidas and his two short shorts. <laughs> I, may, I, may ha- I may have to get that picture. <laughs> so what level of fandom are we talking about here? Fan letters, posters on the wall? Is that that kind of level? Well, sort of... Uh, Going back to the Brendan Fosters and Eamon Coughlin's and John Tracy's of, of and, and, let's for, and, and let's forget Foster for a second, Murph. We're talking Irish Yeah, actually, here. that's more I, like I hate it. to be yeah, totally yeah. parochial, but... <laughs> I did not have... I had... Um, you know, I, I remember very well those... There was a great Sports Illustrated cover years ago with Eamon Coughlin on it. Um, I think, and I think the title was King of the Boards. Yeah. Chairman of the Boards or King Chairman of the, of the Boards? boards. Chairman, Chairman of the, of the boards. boards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. And I think it was after he ran his favorite, his famous world record, indoor world record, which was, I think, at Madison Square Garden in the uh, Milrose Games, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, that world was so... Um, it's, I mean, it's it's unrecognizable compared to today's world of distance running. It was just such a different sport now. But mm. um, that's when I was in my, when I was at the height of my own running, those were the kind of heroes of my yeah. imagination. Well, it's, it's different now, Malcolm, in that we're, we're not quite as dominant as we once were. I mean, those Milrose games were ours for about a decade. We'd Marcus O'Sullivan, Eamon Coughlin. We were pretty, we, we were dominating pretty much everything. It doesn't really happen anymore now. But tell us, how did you, how did you follow all that? Because it might be well known that you grew up in a house that had no television. And so how, how was it that you were even into all this stuff? Uh, Sports Illustrated and track and field news. And, um, and just talking to people, you know, just kind of having conversations with other run. I mean, it's in the seventies, your relationship to all sports was different that you, you know, it was perfectly fine to participate in something entirely through your imagination. You know, you, you know, even I was, someone was reminding me that even great basketball or football players of that era, many of their most important um, opponents, they would never see. So they would only, you know, you might play, you're a basketball player, you might play some great rival a couple times a year. And otherwise you would never see that rival play the game. I mean, you would, I mean, you, he was never on television. You would just read about them or hear about them. That was, you know, that's, it was common across the board. I mean, as recently as the seventies that you, that these were, these were, um, uh, you know, almost your, 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 your sports following was a kind of fantasy activity. 
was in you you had very little connection with the real thing except in the olympics of course you started doing it yourself though you said this was the height of your your own running can you tell us a little bit because you weren't just a you know you weren't just a kind of work at a club runner at a, at a young age you were a champion runner i was a i i peaked at the age of 15. <laughs> it seems so absurd to say. Much respect. The story is for quite a few people out there, I think, Malcolm. Uh, many of our, our best sporting highlights are 14 and under, 15 and under, probably. Yes, I was a, at 14, I ran a 414, 1500 meters. And at 15, I ran a 405, 1500 meters. And at 158, half mile. And then, and then I, my career just kind of faded away. I got injured. I stopped running, I got distracted, and I didn't race again until I was 50. I took a 35 year break, um, then, but I still followed the sport, but I didn't, um, in retrospect, it was the thing I regret most. I would love to have known what I could have run in my peak. I don't think I was going to be a, you know, an elite runner, but I think it would have been a nice, comfortably sub-elite runner. Um, and I would really like to have known whether I could have broken a four minute mile, for example, at 25. Um, but I'll never know that, so. Now, hold on a second. Even the fact that you have that in your head that you think maybe I could have broken a four minute mile at any point in your life leads me to believe that you're you're even underselling yourself a little bit as a teenager. I mean, you, you weren't, like it said, you must have been pretty elite even to have those thoughts in your head. My, f- I had a Canadian record for a while until it was Wow. Smashed. <laughs> much better, better than me. Um, that was the 414 at, it was at 13. The 414, 1500 meters was at 13. The 405 was at 14. At that point, I was one of the better runners of, for my age in the country, in Canada. Um, but I could sense, you know, age group running is so, it's very misleading because if you mature just a little bit faster than your peers, you'll dominate for a short time. And then everyone catches up in the end. You know, it's like awarding someone for for reading while they're in kindergarten. It's not much of an accomplishment because everyone will read eventually, right? <laughs> Your lead does not persist through the normal course of maturation. Mm-hmm. So I remember I sensed that I was a little bit just further along than the people I was running against. And I, I didn't have a true, you know, there are runners that you know at an early age that you sense really are special. Mm-hmm. And they were those I ran with who I knew were better than me ultimately. So I was never under any false illusions about my ability. I was, I was pretty good and I'm, for my age, I'm still pretty good. You still beat those guys on occasion though, right? A guy called Dave Reed, who we might be too familiar with, but certainly anyone in Canada would be. You, you beat this guy, went on to compete at world championships and all the rest? I beat him, uh, I, yes, I beat him, th- I think three times. So I did, yes, I beat an, a future Olympian. That's my claim to fame. Um, you described it as the happiest moment of your life. Yes. No, no. Is, is that still true to beat Dave Reed? It was, it was, you know, I'm someone who places an unusual amount of stock, an irrational amount of stock in someone's account, like accomplishments. My, I have a very good friend named Diana who was a, she almost made the American swimming Olympic team. So she missed by, a, you know, a few hundredths of a second from making, which means that she was one of the best swimmers in the world. Now she hasn't swum competitively for 30 years, um, more than that, 35 years. I, whenever I introduce her to other people, that's the first thing I say. I say she was, she was a world-class swimmer. I can't get it out of my head. I mean, she's gone on to do a million other incredibly important <laughs> things, but to me, 
the fact that she was, you know, the fact that she was that good at some something athletic just matters an enormous amount to me. I don't know, and I'm I don't know why I feel that way, but I I do. I treasure these kinds of um, athletic accomplishments. Did you enjoy? And you still are running, but if we go back to 15, 14, 15 year old Malcolm Gladwell, did you enjoy the suffering and the, the physical punishment that's almost a pre, that is a prerequisite that, that we're actually told that athletes really have to endure and maybe almost enjoy in a perverse way? Did you did you like that part of it? I do. I um I still like it. You know, yesterday I did a hill workout. It was just ten times one minute up a relatively steep hill. And you know, by the seventh repetition. You're beginning to feel it a little bit in your legs. And by the ninth and 10th, you really are working very hard. And for reasons I don't understand, that's enormously pleasurable. Mm. Um, but I don't think of it as pain. I think of it as exertion. Pain is a separate category. Um, you know, I think of marathoners experience, I think, real pain. Where there's a real duration, the kind of, I'm a middle distance runner. And I don't think that our moments of maximum exertion are long enough to qualify as, as pain. Um, mm. You know, pain is something that goes on and on and on and on. And I've watched marathons where it is very clear to me the runners are in some kind of, or cyclists are actually a better example, where, you know, when they have a day when they're climbing, it is clear that they are in severe distress for, in some cases, hours. I mean, you know, you're climbing up some massive mountain in the Tour de France. So I don't think I'm good at pain, but I am good at a kind of, I do enjoy a kind of um, that extended high level of exertion. I have uh, I've run a few marathons myself very slowly, Malcolm, very slowly. And, and you're, bringing, you're bringing back flashbacks, I've got to say, because it's been a couple of occasions. One in particular, when the, that painful period you talked about was of such a duration, it went on for about an hour, an hour and a half of a race. And I was getting passed by, you know, the guys who, who are wearing the novelty fruits, like, or the novelty costumes, the big giant bananas were running he back. He may never live it down, Malcolm, as you oh, can imagine. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, it's a different kind of a thing. But the, the 1500 meters is tough going and middle. I mean, all sport, obviously, of that nature is tough going physically. And psychologically, I think this is something maybe that we're understanding more and more in recent times because the likes of Naomi Osaka and more recently Simone Biles have talked about it, the, the emotional toll on sports people from a very young age. Is there an argument that we're actually, that by, by we, I mean just society and people who love sport are asking too much from people from a very young age? Uh, I think the short answer is yes. That I don't know whether Simone Biles is a, good example of this. It strikes me that what she's happening, what's happening to her is something that periodically happens to elite athletes in that sport where they're, they're kind of, they're kind of um, uh, psychological holes on these incredibly intricate maneuvers is so important that when they feel it slipping, they have to stop it. They just don't have any. But I do think, you know, the phenomenon of anyone who's run started competitive running at a young age is aware of this phenomenon of burnout, which is very mysterious to you when you're, when you're in your teens, the idea, cause you're doing something that you love. And then you see people who are slightly older than you, who just kind of fall away from the sport or who no longer can compete at a high level. And you don't know, you don't know why that happens, but I think we, we if we were honest with ourselves, we would say that, um, that f- 
anytime an athlete burns out or loses their love for what they're doing or their capacity to compete at a high level, that represents a certain a failure of a certain kind. And that we really should be structuring youth sport to minimize that kind of failure. And you know, I've often said that the goal of any sport that most of us, with the exception of truly elite people, uh, engage in at a young age should be to engage in that sport for the balance of our healthy lives. So the question you should ask, you have an 11 year old who comes to you and is very interested in running. You should say to her, I would like to, we're gonna fashion a running program for you that will allow you if you wish to run into your seventies. So the question is, what does that look like for an 11 year old if our time horizon is 50 years? So how can we make it seem sustainable, keep you healthy over that time, keep you still wanting to come back to more, keep you wanting to race when you're 70 as much as you want to race now. Like, and that's a very different question than my goal is to make you elite over the next year. And I, I think we need to be asking that. We're not, you know, another good example of this would be tennis. Tennis is being played now at a young age where, you know, the stress, the physical stresses of hitting these extreme topspin, um, hard topspin shots is that you're getting huge amounts of injuries and you're making it very hard for people to play tennis gracefully into their into old age, which is what tennis was supposed to be for, right? It was the sport you could play well. <laughs> if you've ever watched that, this track I run at, there's a tennis court next to it. And there are these two guys in their eighties who play tennis all the time and they barely move, but they their strokes are perfect. And they play the most gorgeous game of tennis. And that's because the kind of tennis they were taught was sustainable. It was the tennis you could play when you're 80. And I want that to be true of runners. And I, when I think about, when I see these examples of burnout, I think that's failure on the part of the sport. I do think the question about, uh, you know, prioritizing to the 11 year old, okay, in eight years time, nine years time, pick the Olympiad that's gonna happen then. You're gonna be, you're gonna win a gold medal at that. Um, like it can create abusive, damaging environments. And gymnastics, obviously, in the USA is a, is a massive example of that. And it just really shows the dangers of that kind of elite medal-centered thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. In fact, you know, there isn't, you know, the, the age at which people start, when, when, when people start participating at a high level in a sport before puberty, I think you have to raise an eyebrow and say, are we sure what we're doing here is right? Because putting that kind of physical stress on a body before it's mature is deeply problematic. And when you, you know, I have a physical therapist who I see sometimes who was a ballerina and she'll talk about, you know, if you ever talk to ballet dancers about the craziness of that sport, they have, a, they have injury rates of 100%. Everyone has a hip problem or a knee problem or, and, you know, she was talking about the number of people she danced with who have, who by the age of 40 had hip replacements. I mean, it's just like, when you look at those kinds of things, you as a sport, as a, I mean, it's a sport, it's sort of a sport, but as a discipline, you have to say, we're, this is all wrong. We're, you know, it's the point of this is not to, to cripple um, people by the time when enjoying the healthiest, by the time in, in what should be the healthiest and happiest physical moments of their life. That's crazy. Um, and yeah, I, I, I worry sometimes that running, uh, you know, when I see 11 year olds running 
super fast 5Ks. I just think that's just, that is nuts. Like you can't do that. You're, you're just compromising someone's ability to run happily for the rest of their life. Where does the 10,000 hours rule fit into all that then, Malcolm? Because presumably you can't say on one hand that kids need to live a normal life and need to do stuff that's all around healthier. And then on the other hand, you tell them you have to clock up these 10,000 hours in order, in order to master your craft. Not necessarily just talking about running, but in general. Yeah, well, you know, the 10,000 hour rule is the most unfortunate thing I've ever written about. Oh, oh really? <laughs> it was so routinely misunderstood. First of all, I never thought it would apply to sports. In fact, I, I think explicitly it doesn't apply, or at least it applies in a very different way that I'm very convinced by that wonderful book by David Epstein talking about the dangers of early specialization and how elite people, performers in on many, many domains are those who have a broad range of experience in early life. So it's not that the, they also spend a lot of time in preparation, but it's not singular preparation. It's broad speculation, preparation. They play many sports, they do. So I was thinking of, you know, when I was thinking of the 10,000 hour rule, I was thinking of it as applying to cognitively complex adult activities. How long does it take to be a very good brain surgeon? Well, it takes probably, you're probably gonna have to practice for 10 years. Um, how long does it take to be a really good computer coder? Well, you can't take up coding at 17 and expect to be really good at 18. It's not gonna happen, right? That's what I was thinking about. But people ran with that to much to my dismay. <laughs> well, the quote you gave for David Epstein's book, uh, which you re referenced there, Range, for reasons I cannot explain, David Epstein manages to make me thoroughly enjoy the experience of being told that everything I thought about something was wrong. I loved Range, which I have to say, of all of the <laughs> book blurbs I've ever read on the front cover, that is absolutely top class. But I must say, we had David Epstein on the show and he, he noted your exact wording there, which obviously you're very precise about. And he said that... Uh, you know, what Malcolm is saying, he doesn't say that he is wrong. He says he enjoys the experience of being told he's wrong. So are you now <laughs> confirming to us that you were wrong about the 10,000 hours rule, Malcolm? <laughs> David and I are very good friends. Very good runner, by the way. You know this. Easy, he and I man. used to train together. We, we used to do stairs. There was a period in my life when I was obsessed with doing stairs. And David would join me for these stair, for stair workouts. And um, he's, a, he is a, he's a lovely, lovely person. No, boy, David both. I both enjoy being told I'm wrong by David and I enjoy being proven I'm wrong okay. by David. So both both conditions apply. <laughs> I do want to talk to you about, I'm, I'm listening to your audio book at the moment, your latest audio book, The Bomber Mafia, which I was ordered to do, I think, while uh, listening to Revisionist History, the new series of your podcast, which is, I, I, can't, I cannot recommend highly enough. It's one of my favorite podcasts out there. Can I ask you, you've, you seem to be focusing a lot, not that you aren't writing at the same time, but you're, you've gone heavy on audio in recent years with the podcast and, you know, telling people to buy the audio book of this. I'm kind of intrigued as to why one of the world's most influential writers is telling people to not necessarily read what he's writing, but to listen to him instead. Well, I just kind of, uh, I've kind of got very intrigued by um, the possibilities that come with, uh, with audio storytelling. It's just a different way to tell a story. I and mean, then you can tell a different kind of story. So, you know, this, if we made a transcript of this conversation and we just published the transcript, very few people I imagine would be interested in reading the transcript. But I imagine lots of people are quite happy to listen to us. Now that's a really interesting question, why? 
I could read the transcript much faster to a, this conversation much more quickly than I can. But that's not what we're in. What people, the reason people listen is there's something about the nature of conversation, of listening to conversation that's different and special, particularly for certain kinds of topics. Mm. So if we read the transcript of this conversation, people would probably never laugh, but they might well laugh in listening to us. They would, they might, they would probably never, um, if we were talking about something different, it would be very hard to make them cry on the page. But, you know, we cry all the time in listening to people's stories. So those different kinds of possibilities got really, have become really interesting to me. And I've realized you can tell, the Barrow Mafia is a, for example, is a book about a group of pilots in war. It's a war story, but it's very, or at least it's intended to be emotionally powerful. And it, I just thought it's so much easier to tell an emotionally powerful story if I make you listen to it. And I can summon these, it's full of all these crazy characters. And I felt that I can do a much better job of making these characters come alive if you hear them. You need to hear Curtis LeMay to understand who Curtis LeMay is. That I listen to that voice and that kind of, for that reason, it's not that I've given up on the old way of communicating, but you know, I'm middle-aged man. I want to try something new. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I find it that that's so interesting because you often read uh, reviews of writers and it's you know a very conversational tone. I suppose this is just the next step, but I, I am kind of interested. Like, what comes first? Do you write with the audio book in mind, or do you write with the book in mind and then record what you've written? If you know the question I, I'm asking, I you. do. I write with the audio book in mind. So okay, it is. The books I'm writing now are structured around the tape, as we say. So I'm thinking very clearly about, so I'm writing a new book right now, which is thinking of it. It's an audio book first, and it will be, there'll be a print version, but um, there's, it's about a man who is the mayor of Los Angeles, Tom Bradley, first black mayor of Los Angeles. And it's a very interesting, complicated story. And there's a, he belonged to a church in South Central LA, the most powerful black church in the city. First American Methodist. And he was their hero. He was their, you know, they they were the ones who helped to get him elected. He was the first black mayor, first mayor to represent their interests. And there's a moment when he goes to give a speech at the end of his career at first to speak on a Sunday morning at First American, First African Methodist Church, and he gets booed. And Bringing that moment to life is at the core of the book because I'm the book is in part about how did they come to boo this man who was their hero, and that is an I don't have, sadly have tape although we may be able to find tape of that moment, but I can certainly reconstruct that moment. But you want to hear the people who were in the room describe what it was like. That's so much more powerful to find all the voices who were there. I can write a paragraph describing that to you, which can work on a certain level. But if I have five or six voices, thinking back 30 years to when this hero of theirs stood up at the front of the church, they booed him in a church. I mean, it's like, it's this crazy moment, right? This hero, and he was this kind of, he's not some, Bradley was a, by the way, Bradley was in his day, almost a world-class quarter miler. 
an extraordinary <laughs> physical specimen of the sort that that's, that's how like, you'd introduce him uh, to your friends now <laughs> <laughs> six foot five like a kind of chiseled out of you know just a kind of presence right so imagine this man at the height one of the, the most powerful african-american politician in america at that point the mayor of one of the biggest cities in the country standing at the pulpit of his church right speaking to his people and on a sunday morning they boo him right that's the moment right so the question is what is the most what is the best way to talk about that moment it is to talk about that moment right and that's why i want to do audiobooks because that kind of storytelling is what appeals to me now it was interesting i heard your desert island discs interview from a few years ago and you were asked to talk a little bit about your mother and the influence she had on your writing she was, she was a writer herself and you switched the question you said it was more about how she spoke she was a jamaican uh, she's from jamaica and you describe her as being the way she spoke you said was a model for how you communicate can you explain that to us a little bit yes my mother first of all has a beautiful voice a voice you could listen to low quiet um uh and she's very precise in how she uses language and um she speaks uh very very simply and clearly and it is so everything there's a kind of um uh there's a clarity to her conversation, which is enormously appealing. You know, it's, I think, the reason why I grew up, you know, um, as a kid, there would be this stream of people who would come to our house and would sit in the living room, in our, you know, in the good room, <laughs> the front room, as it was called, yeah. would sit in the front room with my mother. And they were there to get advice, reassurance, they were bringing their worries to her. I don't know. She just had that role. She was someone people wanted to talk to. And I think it's because of the power of the way that she spoke. Um, and that, that always has had a lasting impact on me that um, if you, uh, if you take, if you, if you take the task of conversation seriously, then people will listen, will come to you, will be drawn to you. And many people don't take conversation seriously. They what does that mean? What do you mean by taking it seriously? think about what they're saying. They, they'll say 10 things with the intention of saying two. <laughs> My mother says two things with the intention of saying two, right? That's the model that I try to follow. Yeah, that is beautifully explained, Malcolm. Although I do feel a little pressure on the remainder of my questions now. I'll try to <laughs> try to keep them as concise as I can. You've already delved into your glittering underage running career, so you should feel confident after the break when we rank the sporting life of Malcolm Gladwell on Second Captain Saturday. Second Captain, first captain, whatever. You're listening to Second Captain Saturday and our chat with one of the world's great writers, thinkers and podcasters, Malcolm Gladwell, who is also a more than decent athlete. You told us earlier, Malcolm, about your exploits as an underage star in Canada, and it is something you still do today. So what do you love about running? Well, I love the simplicity of it the and the purity of it. I mean, so many sports are so become so contrived, 
you know, there's so much equipment and so much complication and all the kind of rules. And sometimes when I'm watching basketball, which is a sport I like very much, I just marvel at like, it is just one massive contrivance. It's, you know, you need, you have all these rules that don't really have any meaning and limitations on when you can do this and when you can't do this and how long this lasts. And, um, and you have referees who are enforcing the most esoteric set of rules. I mean, it is just as, it's as if a, a group of people sat around for 15 years and tried to come up with the most complex sport imaginable. And running is just the opposite. You know, it's that until very recently, there was very little of this kind of complication. Now I think, I think shoes in the last few years are the first time where running is starting to enter into this, um, I think, unfortunate territory where factors other than the pure ability of the um, runner are taken into consideration. Mm. Well, there might have been other factors over well, over yes. the years as well, but that, so. that's another conversation if we're talking about forms well, of well, I wouldn't mind touching on that because I also, yeah. I'm also convinced that, that doping is back. I'm, a, I'm getting a little bit pessimistic and I think that the technology has now, is now outpacing the testers. I mean, you can't look at all the times that are being run right now. You have to have some explanation for what's happening. You know, it's not that the faster, the fastest are necessarily running faster. It's that people who are on the fringes of truly elite status are now suddenly running times that make no sense. Mm. Maybe there's an innocent explanation for it, but I don't know. It's distressing to me that like it doesn't, something doesn't compute. Mm. We do want to take it back to your running for a little bit, your current level of activity, because we will be ranking your sporting life shortly against our previous guests to okay. do that. You did mention that you had this. So you finished up as a, as a teenager after a couple of epic victories, but, you know, it obviously tailed off. Then, what, 30 years later, more than that, you come back to it. And did I read that you absolutely wiped the floor with some young lad off Sports Illustrated there earlier this year? <laughs> I have a friend. His name is Chris. He is 30 years my junior. And he's a very avid runner. And he decided he's very, in a, he, he's very committed to promoting track and field. And he decided that there was a, there was a, a track meet, uh, an Olympic qualifier, a serious meet being held in New York. And he said, let's do a kind of fun mile race to open the meet. And I will challenge you. And he, you know, let's see. So he went on social media. He talked a big game. He got people giving odds. And it was this whole like, and it was very fun. And so I decided to get, I, you know, I trained, got a coach to give me a whole series. I went into serious training for three months. Four months. Sorry, no, was, was there a lot of smack talk between you and Chris? Was there? I mean, massive, was it? A massive amount of smack talk. <laughs> oh, okay, good, good, good. I, was wondering I, if I made it very clear. At one point, he said, he tweeted, but it was constant Twitter, um, back and forth. At one point, he said, my mom asked me, before the race, my mom asked me why I'm racing an old man. And I responded, pretty sure I'm older than your mom. <laughs> yeah anyway so we has a big build up we raced and i did i did i did i did defeat him oh. um quite handily i was very pleased with myself um wearing the sh i was wearing the super shoes though so we don't know whether the time was real um, <laughs> all right so you're saying you're saying you're worried about the technological advancements but you're not above you are, wearing those yeah, you are happy yourself. to use the yeah. <laughs> happy to use them i actually i got someone to put me in touch with someone at nike and i and i explained to them what was happening and I said, I need look, look, I can't find these spikes anywhere. You can't find the Nike special spikes. They're just not available for sale. So I said, you have to get me these. Because I, I knew that Chris, which is the guy I was going, I knew he had them. And I was like, look, it's bad enough that I'm 30 years older than him. 
I am not going into this this race with inferior spikes. So they sent me they sent me a pair of super spikes. And by the way, they are amazing. I mean, I can't even describe to you everything you hear about them is true. Oh yeah, yeah, they're just they're insane. Anyway, I did. I I, I ran five fifteen. He ran five twenty three. Oh, it's a beatdown. It's, oh. it's a beat down. He uh, down. the crowd had to avert their gaze at the end of it. It was just too much, too brutal. And I actually think I could have run a lot faster. I'll be immodest for a moment. I think I actually could have run very close to five minutes, which is my advantage. And then afterwards, he said, he, he asked for a rematch. And I said, um, I'll happily race you again when you're my age and I'm 87. <laughs> I heard you got a little bit nervous before that and that maybe running brings out a nervous side of you that doesn't exist in I got uh, I got, I got overwhelming I get so nervous really it's why I, I I'll never be a really good runner um I couldn't sleep I mean I, I was just a it was impossible I don't know why but it, yeah there's nothing else that makes me as nervous as the prospect of a race I mean even standing in front of thousands of people talking to the public that kind of stuff do you, do you have any idea as to why running does something to you that that doesn't do do not know racing it's racing it's is when i was a kid running i would get incredibly nervous too i don't know why i just do the i somehow it's something i've never i should almost you know i should go and see a sports psychologist and mm -hmm. deal with my before it's too late because i you know i'm <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got until you're 87 for your next your next race, so you've got plenty of time to work on the mental side of things. So, Mark, we just need to clarify then before we rank your sporting life. You're, you've given us a couple, but what's your your highlight of your own running career? Dave Reed, well, come on, Dave Reed. It's about, yes, it's it's it is in the Ontario High School Track and Field Championships of 1977. This is so pathetic that I'm <laughs> holding up a, something from the 70s as my. I, when I beat a future Canadian Olympian in the 1500 meters, the time of four minutes, five seconds, that would be my sporting, that would be the highlight, my sporting highlight. That is a whopper. Murph, if Malcolm doesn't go straight to the top of this leaderboard, I'm, I'm walking out of here because I refuse to work under these conditions. Please, Kieran, can you rank this sporting life of Malcolm Gladwell? You don't understand, I could have had class. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Okay, Malcolm, thanks so much for joining us today. But now is not the time for bland platitudes. It's down to business. The task for me, a task I never take lightly, I should add, is to evaluate your career sporting highlight, nominate a sports person that I feel most closely resembles you, and then give you a score out of 100. American man of letters, Richard Ford, is top of this year's leaderboard with 85 points. And he writes some good book. He's got tremendous book game. There's no doubt about it. But can you take him down? Well, you are a legitimately good runner. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Your studiously analytic approach to all things in life, not just running, a refusal to swim with the current, your constant questioning for answers to life's most difficult questions. I mean, what runner does that sound like to you? I'm sorry, but does this, does this not sound exactly like the sort of thing Emil Zatopek, the original innovator in running and training techniques, <laughs> would appreciate? I mean, he's only the Runner's World magazine greatest runner of all time, winner of the 5,000, 10,000, and marathon at the Helsinki Games in 1952. Uh, major, major points added for beating a future Olympian like a drum at under 14 level. I'm surprised he was able to pick up the pieces after such a <laughs> thorough hammering. 
points deducted for, let's face it, clearly loving British 80s runners more than Irish 80s runners. Yes, we all noticed. Also, you're dropping a couple of more points for wearing performance-enhancing Nike super shoes because we're old school back here. But all in all, I have to say, this has been an exceptional run on your part. I'm going to give you 88 points. You are our new leader, Malcolm Gladwell. This has been your sporting life. Oh, I am. This is... I am, this is, I'm just thrilled. I can't even, I'm at a loss for words. I cannot believe I came in three points higher than. The only thing that could make this better for you, Malcolm, is if we got Dave Reed on to talk about how devastated he was after your, after your defeat of him in 1977. That could, that's the only thing that could make this better. My, my current, no, no, the only thing that makes it better, my current running um, crush is um, Laura Muir. I will watch any race she runs. I think of her as like, she's just so, so if you were to compare me <laughs> to Laura Muir, that would have been the highlight of my Oh, Murph. <laughs> You've blown the opportunity. I, yeah. I missed a trick. I, I wouldn't mind. mind. Zadabek also wore special shoes. I think they were the big army boots that he used to wear in training. Right. He yeah. weigh, weigh himself yeah. down. Yeah. Listen, Malcolm, you've given loads of your time here. We better let you. We've finished with that, this nonsense now, franking your sporting life. So we do appreciate it so much. We let you get out for a run there, whatever it is. You want, maybe watch some, some athletics on TV. Appreciate it so much. It was an absolute honor. Thanks so much. Good. It's a pleasure.
New order there with Age of Consent on Second Captain Saturday. I gave Malcolm Gladwell the big build-up and he did not disappoint. I absolutely loved listening to him. Although, let's face it, where he did disappoint was his love of the Irish runners of the 70s and 80s. We built that one up. We gave him loads of chances. But perhaps he's not as obsessive as we were led to believe. Malcolm, just tell us you had a bloody John Tracy poster in your bedroom in Canada and we could just move on with the rest of the show. But he was big uh, enough, Guan, yeah? Yeah, a a lie there wouldn't have hurt. It was an entirely (laughs) harmless lie he could have told us there. But that's fine, though. Give them what they want, Mac. He was also big enough, I should say, to admit that he was wrong on the old 10,000 hours. Is this a world exclusive? Malcolm Gladwell disowns the 10,000 hour rule? Probably not, but I'm going to claim this as a <laughs> world exclusive. Sounds like he might have disowned it before now, judging by the uh, <laughs> the weary the tone. He slipped into yeah, that. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, admit, yeah. I heard that admission. Eamon Coughlin, by the way, I, sh- I should also mention, was that the Sports Illustrated cover that he mentioned there wasn't actually chairman of the boards. Conor McGregor was apparently, a lot of people saying, the first Irish person to be, I think McGregor himself possibly, first Irish man on the cover of Sports Illustrated. But no, Coughlin tweeted three covers that he was on, and on none of them is the phrase chairman of the boards, unfortunately. Bagara is what's on there, Murph, oh, disappointingly, gosh. on at least one of them. <laughs> that is that is disappointing. That's not great. <laughs> that is not great. Our newest sporting superstar, Kelly Harrington, is already a world champion. Can she win an Olympic gold medal in Tokyo tomorrow morning? I think I'm working myself up into a, <laughs> to a ball of nerves here. I never should have watched that semi-final that Beatrice Ferreira fought. After Kelly had gotten through her semi-finals. She is, she's freaking me out a bit. But then again, I'm not Kelly Harrington. So who cares what I think? We want to play something special before we wrap today. Because we had the pleasure of meeting and interviewing Kelly at one of our live Second Captain's shows in the Liberty Hall Theatre in Dublin back in December 2018. She was just home actually from winning her world title. She was buzzing. She got the packed crowd buzzing as well. She was just absolutely sensational. And now that she's preparing for the biggest fight of her life on Sunday morning, we thought it might be nice to play you the following clip of the story of the very first fight of her life. Take it away, Kelly. It took me ages to go into a boxing club. And then when I got in, they thought I was there for like three months. So they thought, this one's not going to stick it out, you know. And like, like, probably, like, I probably wouldn't have, in fairness, if they didn't do this. And they were like, we'll send her off for a little club show, get her a baiting and see how that turns out. (laughs) (laughs) Off I goes, down to Cavan. It's in the ring. This one is thumping the head off me. I'm hitting her and I'm telling, I'm saying every time I land punches, I'm saying, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I was like, please don't hit me back for that. Like, Jesus, like, and like, that was literally it. The fight got stopped in the third round before the bell went, which I was kind of raging. I was, didn't even make it through the third round. I was like, oh no. But I got in, into the van on the way home and I literally cried my eyes out because I was at being battered. Like, and the fact that then my ego was a bit bruised as well. So um, I says, this is it now, like, I'm going to get her again, like, I'm definitely going to get her again, you know, like, so it was a year later and I kept training, like, and just, just for that one girl, like, I just kept training, <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and honestly, like, just for that one person, I was like, I'm going to get her, so we got her up to Dublin then, got her on my club show, <laughs> which was brilliant. <laughs> okay. I, I think we know how this ends. And it was in the inner city, so... It was brilliant. All, all my family and everything were there and, and, and I got the decision over it. And at that time, I felt like I won a world title there as well. So, And then pretty much then, I just kept, just stuck it out. Like <laughs> That poor girl from Cavan, Kieran. She never stood a chance in the rematch. But, you know, if Kelly had happened to squeak a victory in that first fight, maybe she would have just drifted away from the sport. 
this the remorseless uh, <laughs> uh, search for revenge in the in the first year of her boxing career might have been just the rocket fuel she needed to carry her all the way to a world championship and fingers crossed an Olympic gold tomorrow morning. Fingers crossed indeed she can cap it all tomorrow morning 6am Irish time set the alarms this one could be a cracker it's a huge day coming up today on Saturday Sports so stay tuned for that you can check us out again during the week at secondcaptains.com for independent member-led podcasts that also include shows like The Player's Chair with Richie Sadler and international series like Where Is George Gibney thanks so much to Killian Down on research to Mark Horgan and Simon Hick for producing the show thanks to Jan in studio thanks Barf thank you Owen thanks for listening we'll catch you again next week